Morning, church. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the second chapter of Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 this morning. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Does everyone know that there's a football game tonight? Do you know that? Do you know this is Super Bowl Sunday? I'm interested because I don't think that there are a lot of diehard 49ers fans or diehard Kansas City Chiefs fans here, but I am sort of curious here. If you would say, I'm not asking you who you're rooting for tonight. I'm not asking who you think is going to win the game, but if you would just say, I, I am a huge diehard 49ers fan, would you just raise your hand? Like, no, nobody? No there's, no, there's not a single 49ers fan here. What about Chiefs? Any Chiefs fans? In the sanctuary, there we, we have three. Thank you, choir. For we have three, we have three. Yeah, so uh, not a whole lot of interest, I guess, with the Super Bowl right here. A hundred million people are estimated worldwide to to watch the Chiefs beat the 49ers tonight. So. Uh, no, you shouldn't worry about that because nobody cares who wins and nobody even cares who's playing in the sanctuary right here. So, but I've got Patrick Mahomes beating the 49ers defense 31 to 27. That's my prediction here. No, I'm no Tony Kornheiser by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, I will be watching along with 100 million people worldwide. And there are going to be homes that are filled up. I don't know how you're going to watch the game. Maybe you're going to some friends' houses tonight or a friend's house tonight to watch the game. Maybe a family is going to get together. Maybe you're going to go to a restaurant to, to watch it. I wouldn't want to do that. Not to say that it's not wrong, anything wrong with that, but I don't want to be with hundreds of people watching the Super Bowl. It's, it's too crowded. You know? don't, I, don't like, I don't like those kinds of crowds. Do you like those kinds of crowds? Do you like to be stuffed into a place, even to stuffed into a home right there? Uh, it happens at Super Bowl Sunday. There might be a life group that you're hosting at your house, and you're all going to be filled up in the, your home watching the game tonight. I wouldn't want to be there necessarily. I like you, but uh, uh, I don't want to be stuffed in there. You know, because there is just something about being in the midst of a crowd where you just can't move. It just kind of makes you nervous in some respects here. And that happens with Super Bowl Sunday. It happens in countless restaurants. It happens in countless homes where uh, people flock together to be able to watch this game where 100 million people are going to pause and uh, devote themselves, if not to the game, they're going to devote themselves to the commercials in between the games here. In some respects, you have to kind of ask yourself, what, if, if the Super Bowl draws that kind of crowd, what, what drew that kind of crowd 2,000 years ago? What, what got villages together? What, what brought about citizens from, from a town to see? I mean, there wasn't a Super Bowl, so, so what was it that attracted the, the collective interest of a group? And it's interesting when you're asking that question, you come upon Mark's gospel, especially the second chapter, it answers that question very clearly here. What drew a crowd? Well, the answer really is, is asking another question, who drew a crowd? And in Mark chapter 1, we, as we're walking through the gospel of Mark, we see that Jesus had this way about drawing people in curiosity and even also skepticism to his message. There were crowds that were attracted to him. You remember Mark chapter 1 there at the, uh, in, uh, in Capernaum where you have this demon-possessed person that Jesus exercises the demon for and it drew a crowd. Andrew and Simon, those first and earliest disciples 
Their mother was sick, had a fever. Jesus healed her, and it drew a crowd. The leper came to Jesus. He healed. He made the leper clean, and it drew a crowd. It drew a crowd so much that he had to go out of the town, out of the village. And then when we pick up Mark chapter 2, he's in another town. He's made his way back to Capernaum, the very place where he exercised the demon, the very place of Andrew and Simon's mother that he healed the fever of. And he's made his way back to that place because he's getting away from the crowds, but he can't get away because the crowds are attracted to him and the crowds get in the way. In Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we read the story of a crowd that four friends had to get through. You can read with me in your copy of God's Word. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. It's hard to know what home he was at. There are some scholars that would say this is Simon and Andrew's home, the very place he healed their mother of the fever. We don't know. Uh, N.T. Wright actually says that this is uh, Jesus' own home. It's sort of a minority interpretation. We, we don't know the home. But the location we know of in Capernaum at a house, many were gathered together in verse 2 so that there was no more room, not even at the door. So the crowd is pushing people out. You can't even get into the door here. And he was preaching the word to them, Jesus was. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And then when they could not get near him because of the crowd, again, notice the repetition of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming, they said. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, notice again the repetition, immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Raz, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Raz, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, Now, I love the end of of verse 12 here. We never saw anything like this. We never saw anything like this. Now, it's easy for us to misinterpret this passage through 21st century architectural uh, images. We we, we think of a pitch of a roof and someone climbing up on the shingles and and digging through, uh, but that's not what's going on here. And uh, 2,000 years ago in Palestine, you would have uh, stairs outside that would lead you to the top of a home, which would be a flat roof that would have timbers that ultimately were holding the, the roof there. The roof, actually, the pitch of the roof would actually be Figs and it would be uh, twistles, it would be these things with hardened mud together. So it was this hardened mud consistency that would go between the, the, um, the timbers there that were three feet at times apart. 
so, so wide apart that you have stories in the first century of coffins that cannot fit into the home through the doorway. And so the coffin would go up on to those steps and you would dig through the timbers and you would lower the coffin into the home. So this is an exceptional story, no doubt. But it is not a wholly unknown occurrence that is happening here. No, no one's busting through the, uh, the, the, the shingles on a house here. They're, they're digging through that hardened mud consistency in between these timbers, and they're laying before Jesus a person that they can't get into the house because the crowds have overflowed the house. Now, this story, memorable story, no doubt, it teaches us something about who Jesus is, and it teaches us who we are called to bring before Jesus. So there's an application to your life, your calling. There's a truth that we want to hold on to, the identity of Jesus, as we look at this story. So let's think about the truth this morning. Let's think about how Mark answers for us, who is Jesus through this story? Who is Jesus? He is the only source of forgiveness. That's who Jesus is. He's the only source of forgiveness. Notice the first words that come out of Jesus's mouth in verse 5, it isn't take up your bed and walk out of here to the paralytic. Rather, it is a spiritual pronouncement. Verse 5, your sins are forgiven. Now you can imagine this would have been surprising first and foremost to the friends who brought this paralytic who climbed up on top of the roof, dug through the roof, laid him down, lowered him down, laid him before Jesus they would have been surprised to hear, your sins are forgiven because they had come for physical healing. You can imagine the paralytic saying, thanks, I'm still paralyzed. It, the, the healing of his paralysis is really an afterthought to be able to connect the truth that he is the only true source of forgiveness. Now, it is helpful for all of us here to pause and to ponder sort of a misconception of this passage. And the misconception can be where you make a one-to-one -one correlation between Jesus forgiving him of his sins and his paralysis being healed. And what you can do is take this as a pretext and say, behind any physical ailment, behind any disease, and behind any sickness is unconfessed sin. That's not what this passage is saying. That's not what Jesus is saying here. We don't have a medical history nor a report on what the basis of this man's paralysis was. We don't have that information. But what we do know is behind his paralysis, behind sickness, disease, any physical ailment is the broken world in which we live in that has an effect not only upon us spiritually, but it has an effect upon us physically also. So behind every sickness, behind every ailment is not unconfessed sin, but behind every sickness, behind every ailment is sin, capital S, that we don't live in the Garden of Eden, and that even creation itself groans for redemption, and a part of the groaning of redemption is our own physical bodies that one day will be, in the new heaven and the new earth, incorruptible bodies. We will be like him, paralysis no more, sickness no more. In that place, we will walk with him, this man in the healing, he receives a, a foretaste. He receives a, a preview of the coming attractions of the new heaven and the new earth. But he receives his healing physically 
as a way to attest who Jesus is and what he can offer spiritually. Everyone that is there hears this. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they're surprised in every way that Jesus says to this man, your sins are forgiven. This is wholly offensive to these religious leaders. Look with me at verse 7. Notice the questions they ask. Why does this man speak like that? Why does he speak like that? Notice what they say. He's blaspheming. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So what they're saying is, is is this person saying that he is God? Jesus overhears this. He responds, well, I hear what you're saying. I'm the son of man, he says in verse 10. The son of man is a reference back to Daniel, the prophet. Daniel chapter 7, that is a prediction of the son of man who is going to institute a physical and a spiritual kingdom. What Jesus is saying, the person that Daniel prophesied of, I am that person. I am the one who can forgive sins. And if you don't believe me, hey, you who I just forgave your sins, get up, carry your bed out of here. And so the physical healing of this paralytic is is this connection to what Jesus can do. And what Jesus can do is that he is the only source of forgiveness. I mean, just think of it this way. If these same four friends brought the same paralytic to these same scribes and Pharisees one day earlier, Jesus hasn't shown up on the scene. They just bring him one day earlier and say to the scribes and Pharisees, hey, how can this person have his sins forgiven? They would have answers. They they would definitely have answers. They would say, he needs to go to the temple. You need to have a sacrificial offering. You need to see the high priest. The high priest needs to cleanse himself. The high priest comes into the Holy of Holies and offers a sacrifice. And that sacrifice is for the atonement of his sins and the atonement of your sins. And here Jesus shows up on the scene and says, your sins are forgiven. Whoa! What about the temple? What about the high priest? What about the sacrificial offering? None of that. What Jesus is saying to everyone who would hear is, I am the temple. I am the high priest. I am the sacrificial offering. To find forgiveness, you don't have to go to a place. To find forgiveness, you have to find a person. And that person is me, Jesus Christ. Wherever Jesus goes, so there is forgiveness to be found. At his word, there is spiritual cleansing. Jesus is the only source of forgiveness. That was true 2,000 years ago, and it is true today. We look not to our works. We look not to our righteousness. We look not to doing enough to merit the forgiveness of a holy God. Rather, we cast our needs before him because all of us in this room are paralyzed by sin and unbelief. All of us in this room have a problem that can only be fixed by a Savior, and that is Jesus. As he offered forgiveness then, so he offers forgiveness to any person who would have the faith to turn to him and offer themselves before him. Which leads us to the way this story intersects with your life. You see, if you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, 
you understand that this story becomes sort of a living illustration. It becomes sort of a template that we walk into and begin to see how we are present in this story. We are present because all of us who have received the forgiveness of Jesus have been that spiritually paralyzed person who has heard from Jesus, your sins are forgiven. But all of us who have heard that, we have had individuals, we've had four friends who have made a bed and dug through a roof to get us into the presence of Jesus. This passage, it shows us your calling and my calling to the lost. This passage opens up as an illustration to be able to, to show that you and I have a responsibility to have this kind of intentionality with our friends who are paralyzed by sin and unbelief, paralyzed by their past, paralyzed by the difficulty of life. You have a calling and I have a calling to make a bed and to dig through a roof. The word of the day is the word intentionality. The word of the day is the word intentionality. Notice with me that these four friends did not accidentally make this bed and carry this man on the roof. There's nothing accidental about this. There's nothing happenstance about this. There's nothing coincidental about this. There is great intentionality in the making of this bed. There's great intentionality when they see the crowds that have overflowed the home to climb up on top of the roof. There's great intentionality when there were probably scoffers off to the side saying, what are you doing? Don't you see that Jesus is busy in there? But they would not stop. They begin to dig through the roof. You can imagine the holy people, the scribes and the Pharisees that got the best seat, came the earliest, beginning to look up and to see the dirt falling upon them and beginning to wipe it away saying, what are they doing? What are they doing? And they persisted because they had enough faith to know that only Jesus can heal our friend. That if we can just get our friend into the presence of Jesus, that will make all the difference. So I ask you, who is that friend in your life? Who is that coworker? Who is that family member? Who is that son or daughter, brother or sister? that is spiritually paralyzed by unbelief, spiritually paralyzed by sin that has shackled them, and ultimately you're called to intentionally pray. I ask you, who is that person? I ask you, are you intentionally praying for opportunities to, to make a bed and to dig through a roof? I ask you, are you praying for them, bringing them before Jesus, asking for the opportunities to be able to introduce them to the only source of salvation? Are you seeking those opportunities? I ask you finally, do you have enough faith? Do you, do you believe that only Jesus can provide salvation for that friend? And no matter how far off that friend might be, no matter how hopeless a cause that family member might be, no matter how many times in the past you've tried to introduce them to Jesus, do you have enough faith to know that only Jesus, only Jesus can forgive them of their sins and heal them spiritually from the paralysis of sin? Who is that person? 
Are we seeking those opportunities? Are we praying for those opportunities? Are, are, do we have the faith to know that our God is that big, that mighty, that strong, that he can save the hardest of hearts? You know, behind every testimony of salvation in this room, behind every person, whether they're 8 years old or 88 years old, that bows their knee and asks God to save them through Jesus is a person behind them who made a bed and dug through a roof. Who was that person in your life? I ask you, who, who was that person in your life who, who made a bed for you and dug through a roof? Maybe it was a mom or a dad who, who just faithfully modeled the gospel, who prayed for you who you, you saw their faith make a difference in their life, and they, they introduced you to Jesus through their actions and through their words. You know what they were doing? They were making a bed, and they were digging through a roof. Maybe it was at college, and it was a, it was a roommate of yours or a friend of yours who was intentional in their witness towards you and, and were persistent enough to love you and to pray for you and to care for you and to listen to your questions and to ultimately invite you and to point you to the only source of salvation. Maybe it was a classmate of yours who you just saw the consistency of their walk. They invited you to come and to, to, to be a part of, of something at church, and you didn't know what you were getting into, but what they were doing was they were making a bed. They were digging through a roof behind every person who has trusted Jesus in this sanctuary is men and women who've made beds and dug through roofs. Who are those people? in your life. Can I tell you who one of those one of those people were in my life? I, I've told this story and I'll never tire of telling this story. When I was 13 years old, I had a football coach who was my history teacher and that history teacher took me under his wing and he knew my name and, and he came alongside of me and when we were on the football field, he coached with, with words that were different than the other words that sometimes came out and I saw that there was something different in his language. The way that he related to his students, there was a great intentionality, there was a great care, he knew you. I respected him and in every way. And then one day he came to me months into uh, the, the school year and he said, David, I want to invite you to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. So all the football players, baseball players, softball players, cheerleaders, we, we all had this period at school where we were able to go into the gym. And it was there that he opened up the Bible and one of the first gospel messages. I had heard the gospel before, there's no doubt, but it began to sink in because I had this tremendous respect for this coach, this teacher. And then when he opened up the Bible and he began to talk about the importance of his faith, it was in that moment I said, oh, that's the difference. It isn't just a winsome personality. It isn't just an enthusiastic coach. There is something that is different about him, and that something is Jesus. I did not become a Christian in that moment. But looking back upon it, all of those conversations on the football field, all of those conversations in the classroom, never with a Bible beating me over the head, but just the intentionality, what Coach Stegall was doing for me was making a bed and digging through a roof. And all of us in this room, 
all of us in the sanctuary have those kinds of men and women who faithfully made a bed and they dug through a roof so that we could be exposed to the life-changing message of the gospel. Who was that person in your life? Who were those men and women in your life? And so the question is, who will you make a bed for? Who will you dig through a roof for? Oh, you don't, you don't save anyone. Salvation is not found in you. But in God's sovereignty, he allows human responsibility to come alongside and to be utilized by him to, to have a responsibility for where we come alongside of friends and family members and co-workers and neighbors where we're ushering them into the presence of the life-changing message of the gospel. Who are you doing that for? Who are you intentionally praying for that God would open up those doors in your life? How do you do that? Or do you have to have the perfect words? No. Does it have to be the perfect time? No. How do we do it? Sometimes it's as simple as an invitation. An invitation to have coffee together. An invitation to go to lunch together. An invitation to come to church together. Sometimes it's an invitation. Sometimes it's just pausing. Pausing, slowing down with that neighbor and moving past just the endless conversations that we can have that are passing that say, hey, how are you doing? The weather looks great. But slowing down to, to really listen, to really look for opportunities, to take one more step where you're leading that person closer to Jesus. Sometimes it's in the intentionality of saying, hey, I thought about you. Here's a book. Read it if you get a chance. Here's a podcast. Listen to it if you get a chance. Sometimes it's just when no one's watching, just you daily taking that person before the Lord in prayer and asking God to open up doors for you to carry a bed and to dig through a roof. It was over 20 years ago that I was a student minister. I was 19 years old. And one of the things that we did in student ministry at that time was something called World Changers. And so we would take our students and we, would, we went to Birmingham, actually. It was a summer, July, took our student ministry to Birmingham. And World Changers was an was a event that was all across the nation and all across the world that enabled students with good adults to enter into situations where people needed physical work, oftentimes on their homes. And the physical work that was done over that week gave you an opportunity to get to know, to get to pray for, get to point people to Jesus through the faithfulness of just using your hands to paint, using your hands to roof, using your hands to do that kind of yard work. And it just opened up opportunities. So I brought our student ministry here to Birmingham. It was the first time I had done World Changers, July, hot, Alabama weather. You know that about Alabama. It's hot. I see the hottest place in Alabama in July is on top of a roof. You know that, don't you? We had two houses that we were roofing. I never heard God audibly speak to me, but I'm pretty sure he said, David, I'm not calling you to be a roofer. I'm not calling you to be a roofer. I think I was asking him, God, right, you're not calling me to be a roofer, right? I have a lot of respect for men and women that make their living doing that and have a career doing that. We're all thankful for those individuals. 
But I think many of you in this room would say, well, that's not what I'm called to do. That's not my profession. It's not my profession. But if you think about it, if you just stop and think about it, all of us, no matter our profession, no matter our background, no matter our past and even our present, if you're a follower of Jesus, every one of us in this sanctuary are called to be roofers for Jesus. To make a bed, to dig through the obstacles, to be able to usher our friends, our family members, one step closer to the only source of salvation. Let us pray. So it is this very morning, God, that we come to you grateful for the opportunity to point people toward you. We know that none of us in this room, no human, no follower of Jesus is called to save anyone, but we're called under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to usher people one step closer into your presence. And we thank you for those men and women in our own life who made a bed and dug through a roof so that we could hear the life-changing message of the gospel. We thank you for those individuals. We thank you for the way you sovereignly use them. And so today, we ask that you would use us in that way. We pray for sons and daughters this morning that are paralyzed by unbelief. We pray for co-workers that are paralyzed by their past, paralyzed by sin. We pray, Lord God, for neighbors that you've given us for such a time as this, the great privilege to, to live in proximity to. And it's not accidental. So we lift them to you, praying that you would give us that opportunity to, to come alongside of them, to introduce them to the only one who could say, your sins are forgiven. We pray that today in the strong and powerful name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Give us those opportunities, we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. You've heard this message today. Will you come as God has spoken to your heart?